modern society cannot survive with the defense of king, am I my brother's keeper? This is a dialogue about inequality, the issue of our time. A three-part series of dialogues facilitated by Dr. Jonna Montgomery, Professor of International Political Economy at King's College, London. Our previous two dialogues have led us into a deep discussion relative to income, debt, and asset drivers of inequality, housing, and intergenerational inequality. We are coming to realize that what begins as an economic problem spills out into politics and society. When we see poisonous, racist, bigoted discourse in our public arena, if it's coming from politicians, if it's coming from media outlets, wherever it's coming from, it has a profound impact on everyday people. He's using populist rhetoric to cover up a hard right agenda. He wants to end Medicare as we know it, wants to cut research into health care, cut public education, go against protections of labor. We are so polarized that we will polarize around absolutely anything. People only want to watch what they already agree with. Have you stoked the fire of racism, Prime Minister? What has become clear throughout our dialogues is that inequality has wider effects on politics, society, and democracy. Inequality is not just a personal experience of extreme poverty or exorbitant wealth. There are wider effects on political stability as well as social cohesion. What starts in the economy as income and wealth inequality radiates outward through society and politics in ways that generate polarization. Our final dialogue examines more closely the balance between the state, the market and society. It asks what effect inequality has on social democracy, as well as asking what effect can social democracy have on addressing inequality. So let me start with the Politics of Inequality Working Group here at King's College London. We brought together an interdisciplinary group of scholars to consider the social and political dimensions of inequality. Dr. Lee Savage, who is a senior lecturer in European politics here at KCL, let me start with you and your concerns about the wider political landscape. What's really interesting is that, you know, a lot of surveys ask the question, do you think the government should do more to reduce the gap in incomes between the top and the bottom? And in every single country, you see massive majorities in favour of reducing the gap between the top and the bottom. Um, you know, we're looking at 70 and 80 percent of people saying the government should do more to address this, this gap between the top and the bottom. I don't think I've seen a party win on a platform of eradicating income inequalities or even heavily reducing them. So I, I struggle to see how it's going to become uh, an electorally important issue, uh, an issue that parties can win elections on, which isn't to say we shouldn't address it because I think the, the problems that arise from inequality are really important and parties are trying to address those. Again, inequalities in education, healthcare, and opportunities that are available to people. Dr. Stephen Klein, a lecturer in political theory here at KCL, can you reflect on our dialogue so far and what you see as the connection between politics and inequality? It's a hotly debated question. You would think that in this era of rising inequality, it would really be beneficial for the political parties who are presenting themselves as wanting to fight this sort of inequality. There's a lot of factors that come into why that is not necessarily the case. 
So one is, has to do with the design of electoral systems. You know, if you look in the 1950s and 60s, for example, the British Conservative Party, they saw encouraging homeownership. They said it was a way to create a bulwark of mini capitalists to defend the big capitalists. And so I also think it's a deliberate strategy encouraging things like homeownership that alters the voting interests of a lot of people. And that is going to lead them to vote for a conservative party that is promising to preserve that housing value. And in fact, both center-left and center-right parties are sort of having to do this. But it's a very savvy political strategy. In the same way that when a labor government created the National Health Service, that's very savvy political strategy to make people, you know, feel entitled to a new service. So it's a similar kind of strategic calculus that these parties are making to how do we reshape the interests of people so that they're going to become more reliable supporters of our political program. Now, let me bring in our guests. Professor Martin O'Neill is a philosopher from the University of York, and Dr. James Wood is a political economist from Cambridge University. What are your reflections on these points? I think one reason to care about relative distributive outcomes, to care about inequality and not just absolute levels of economic prosperity, is the fact that unequal holdings of wealth very quickly transfer into unequal political power. Right. So if we live in a democratic society, but it's a society where actually the wealthy get to set the political agenda a lot more, right? So that, you know, they have more voice. There are people who own newspapers who have a tremendous amount of influence on what, what the shape of a national conversation looks like. If you have a democratic society that's actually skewed towards the interests of the wealthy because the wealthy are able to translate economic resources into political voice and political power, then you've undermined the meaningfulness of that democracy. And if you want to have a a socioeconomic settlement, you want to have a society that's justifiable to its members, then, you know, having well-functioning democratic institutions that don't just amplify the interests of the wealthy seems to be an absolute kind of minimal prerequisite for that. I suppose another reason is to do with, with life chances. If you think of it from the perspective of kids within society, what your prospects are like in the UK, where you're going to end up in terms of the range of different jobs and occupations within your society, whether or not you're going to be able to flourish in that society, ought not to be a feature of what the the wealth of your family was, right? Or, you know, maybe you might think, well, it's utopian to, to get rid of that entirely. But, you know, it's very striking that, Societies that have reasonable levels of social mobility tend to be societies that have lower levels of inequality. Where you have very, very high levels of inequality, then people being as they are, very often wealth gets invested in giving often an unfair advantage to those who are already advantaged in other ways. So, I mean, one thing about this, this is a really, really uncontroversial idea. This is not, you know, a radical left idea. If you said to people, do you think that everyone should have a reasonably fair chance in life and that their life prospects shouldn't depend to an enormous degree on the wealth of their parents? Everyone surely would say yes to that. And yet we know that if you want a society that, you know, that delivers on that incredibly minimal ambition, you know, it's just it's an ambition to have a merely decent society then you can't have the kinds of enormous inequalities of of wealth that we have in a society like this one. Let's bring in Dr. James Wood from the University of Cambridge. What's your perspective? This is really interesting because there's been a lot of 
discussions about how the Conservatives have tended to kind of promote private home ownership as a way of appeasing voters. You know, home ownership is a social norm. People want the financial gains from home ownership. So the argument here is essentially that a lot of politicians can try and deregulate access to mortgage credit or build new homes so that more and more people are able to become homeowners and, and kind of meet this social norm. But this isn't new. This is something that the Conservative governments were discussing in the late 1800s. Um, and it's certainly something that the Conservative and Labour governments were doing from throughout the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and so the political importance of home ownership and rising house prices has long been there. The problem that we're faced at at the moment is this tension between the, the fact that you there, the housing market is sort of at peak saturation. It can't keep going up for absolutely ever. And you can't just keep pumping credit into the system without it sort of grinding to some sort of crisis halt. And so what you're actually seeing is that some markets are becoming uh, are experiencing house price declines. This is leading to a lot of political dissatisfaction. I think the the biggest question for me is just what is politically necessary to actually make any changes. You know, we we can all see that it's it's a huge problem, but actually trying to address it is a whole separate issue. That's something that I think really needs to be sort of borne out an awful lot more. What is clear then is where inequality is concerned, there is a balance to be struck between the state, the market, and society. And this is the very stuff of politics. So when we think about inequality as a product of a particular configuration of state, market, and society, it means addressing inequality or doing something about it is most certainly a political concern. The intuition that inequality is divisive and socially corrosive has been around since before the French Revolution. It remains one of the enduring questions, economic and social, of our time. When you study is shedding some fresh light on this country's gender pay gap. It's disappointing that they're making so much less. I didn't know those stats were so high. Canadians are taking on more debt to chase rising prices. I think there are many things government can do, raising the minimum wage, for example, invest in the long run in education. Achieving a social settlement to address inequality is politically difficult, but necessary. We've heard the state can act to improve inequality, but certain governments lack the will to do so. Now I want to bring in my colleagues from the Progressive Economy Forum to discuss a new book, The Return of the State, Restructuring Britain for the Common Good. This collection of essays by leading progressive economists in the UK speaks to the urgency of the crisis, because current levels of inequality and poverty have not been seen like this in Britain since the 1930s. At that time, it was eminent British economist John Maynard Keynes who argued that a failure to provide full employment pushes people towards totalitarianism. Taking inspiration from Keynes, the book The Return of the State, presents economic policies to avoid crisis and promote stability. This book challenges the current Conservative government's levelling up agenda, which seeks to target the regions and social groups deemed worse off by widening inequality, with state intervention to even out the playing field. The aim is to provide equality of opportunity. This is its sole purpose, the same as successive governments have promised since the 1990s, only to see inequality widen year on year. The shift that is urgently needed is to stop talking about inequality as a playing field at all. 
When policymakers frame society in this way, they are putting people on opposing teams to compete in a winner-takes-all game of life. Imagine how much life would improve if governments framed equality as a common good or a resource for society to draw on. A collective good providing widespread prosperity and cohesion rather than individual gain and division. Where ideas lead, practical solutions follow. So we must change how we think and talk about inequality. I'm honoured to welcome Professor Sue Konzelman from Birkbeck University, London, and Professor Jan Toporowski from the School of Oriental and African Studies, who are the editors of The Return of the State. Also, Director of the Progressive Economy Forum, Dr. James Meadway, to lead our discussion of what social democracy can do to address inequality. First, Professor Konzelman, your historical and comparative research has long made clear the connection between economic ideas and government policies and how they govern both economy and society. What do you think is most relevant in our understanding of the role the state plays in shaping inequality? My research on inequality focuses on the social, economic and political instability it creates and the role that economic policy has to play in tackling its causes. I'm also interested in the role culture plays and how we conceptualize it. Until we accept the reality that poverty and inequality are systemic rather than individual problems, the design of economic policy aimed at tackling them will continue to be misinformed and ineffective. I guess the key point is that inequality and poverty can be caused by many factors, most of which can be at least partly addressed through appropriate policy. The question is how policy can not only tackle the causes of inequality, but also help to change our culture and the way we think about people who find themselves struggling with these problems. In our book, Labor, Finance and Inequality, The Insecurity Cycle in British Public Policy, we developed a framework, The Insecurity Cycle, to help make sense of major shifts in British public policy from the dawn of the Industrial Revolution to the present. These include the shifts from laissez-faire capitalism to the post-war Keynesian consensus, which took nearly a century and a half to come about, only to be reversed less than 30 years later with the shift to neoliberalism during the 1970s and 80s. Our objective was to try to understand what might be required for the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath to catalyze another shift, this time in a more progressive direction. The dynamics of the insecurity cycle are driven by the interaction of economic and political forces within society as opposing interest groups, working classes on the one side and wealthier capitalists on the other, apply pressure on the state to shift the focus of policy toward their own viewpoint and interests. Assuming a functional state, the existence of institutions capable of representing the interests of the various groups within society, and confidence in the state's ability to mediate these interests, the result is pendulum shifts between varying degrees of market liberalization and social protectionism in response to pressure from the different groups. However, with a dysfunctional state, especially if either or both sides lose confidence or feel their interests are not being effectively represented, this mediating effect is removed, paving the way for extremism on one side or the other or both. Now, we further developed the insecurity cycle framework in subsequent papers, looking more closely at the nature and role of the state in helping to mediate extremist political pressures coming from both the left and the right. And what we found is that during the interwar years, the British and American states played an important role in avoiding succumbing to the extremes of communism on the left 
and fascism on the right, which many other states did not. The result was a Second World War. Today we're seeing very similar social, economic, and political developments to those of the 1920s and 30s, and many worry about the influence of extremist political pressures, especially on the right, and the threat this might pose for the rise of fascism. So it's still an open question whether the 2008 financial crisis, a decade of austerity, and now the COVID-19 pandemic could produce another shift. As yet, it's uncertain, if it does, whether change will take place within the current conventional wisdom of neoliberalism, or whether we'll see a departure from that and the development of an alternative paradigm. And I think, too, the really important point is that during the 19th century and where we are today, what we see is people blaming the victims. You know, so you see all kinds of evidence of that. The reality is that poverty and inequality are systemic. So they're features of capitalism. They're features of laissez-faire capitalism. And during the interwar years, because of the research Keynes was doing and a lot of others like him, Adolf Barrel in America, so you had people who were looking carefully at the economy and unpicking the way the economy actually works and recognizing that if you have an economy where you don't have a state taking a role in social and economic regulation of some sort, you're going to have poverty and inequality. That's a systemic thing and they're not any fault of the people who find themselves in that situation. You know, it's a feature of unregulated capitalism. If you recognize that, then you're going to introduce policy to deal with the systemic problem that's a feature of unregulated capitalism. You know, we're back to the Victorian idea that people are poor, people are unemployed, people are disabled because it's their fault. My more recent work, the, some work that I've just started doing with Hanna Szymborska, links up with the fact that we should not look at inequality or data on inequality as showing a particular problem. We need to put that data into a social context. And the particular social context that I have in mind is the context of social stratification. Uh, what Polish sociologist uh, Ludwig Krivitsky called uh, many years ago industrial feudalism, by which he meant an industrial capitalist society, but one in which stratification takes place in such a way that precludes mobility between social strata. So, you know, one of the claims of free market economics is that if markets are free, then everyone has the same opportunities and you can rise uh, through society on the basis of uh, your merit and your abilities, your willingness to work hard. What Krivitsky argued was that in a society which is economically stagnating, you may get a situation arising where it's not possible for people to move between classes. So if you're born into the working class, you cannot get into the middle class. If you're middle class, it's more difficult to get into a class of super rich. Now, inequality of income and inequality of wealth 
plays a crucial part in this suppression of social mobility because when income inequality gets greater, when uh, wealth inequality gets greater, it becomes much, much more difficult for any individual, however talented, to acquire the wealth and to move up into the next social stratum above them. Professor Toporowski, Jan, let me ask you specifically. The return of the state concludes with your reflection that for the UK to achieve recovery, there must be more than just token public works. There needs to be a comprehensive investment in the betterment of society. Considering these dialogues so far, in particular how inequality relates to the asset economy and social stratification, what do you see as important when thinking about the role of the state? I think the change starts by looking at the problem of inequality in a much broader uh, social context, looking at the types of stratification that we have in society, looking at the lifestyles and the financial practices that go with those, uh, with that stratification, and then seeing where this creates obstacles to social mobility. I think the the old idea that we can address the problem of inequality simply by taxation, uh, by redistributive taxation, higher taxes on the rich, higher incomes for, for people at the bottom, or, or welfare provision uh, for, for people at the bottom. It, it's oversimplifying the, the problem. It doesn't deal with a problem uh, which is fundamentally, uh, if I can use the, word, the term, endogenous to the way in which we in society organise how we live, uh, how we operate, and how we operate our assets and our property in order to use credit in a way that supports uh, our lifestyle and, and, and that gives us uh, security. So we, we actually need to look at this in a, in a much broader way than just in a redistributive way. I say this also because I don't think that you can equalise income and wealth uh, simply by taxation and welfare provision. We need to go beyond that. We need to address the issues in the housing market. We need to address issues like pensions, pension provision, and uh, welfare provision. Beyond that, fundamentally, the question of employment. So much inequality, really, and so much of the problem of poverty arises, not because of inequality of income, but because of unemployment. And the inequality of income arises because of unemployment. It's only because we have an unemployment problem that we have people on zero-hour contracts and being paid or not paid uh, for work that they do. I just want to bring in Dr. James Meadway. Can you expand on these ideas and reflect on how they might be applied in a practical setting? Do we actually want to think of growth as measured by you know, monetary GDP as the 
desirable outcome to get to, right? Because you know, there are any number of environmentalists who raise the quite correct point that simply saying let's go for growth, as we usually think of it, increases in GDP, uh, has two things. One, the link between increasing GDP and rising wages and incomes, improving living standards for most people, has broken down quite dramatically, at least in the last 10 years and arguably longer, first bit. Second bit, the more we have this growth, the more damage and violence we're doing to the natural world. So, so we can't just push harder and harder at growth. There's this whole backlog of stuff we're producing on the other side. Again, this gets you outside of just thinking about that kind of Piketty world. And that's not a criticism, really. You know, he sets up a model that talks about these sets of issues. And then you turn around and say, actually, there's a whole environment that we have to think about as well. But we should be thinking about the environment as well because it constrains some of the policy options. Let's put it that way. So far, this dialogue has focused on explaining why the state plays a role in configuring inequality today and in the past. The main way, it seems, is by adopting policies that widen or lessen the gaps between the poles in society, either through technical measures like taxation and spending, but also by prioritizing things like well-being or inclusive prosperity. Now the dialogue moves on to think more specifically about how public policy can be used to improve inequality in all its different guises. If we just change how we think and talk about inequality, what really changes? We can understand inequality in all its guises. We can measure it in all kinds of different ways. We can agree it's an urgent economic and social policy. But nothing changes if this knowledge is not put to good use. Fatalism is not an option. We are social beings, the greatest problem solvers on the planet, and we can build a better, more equitable way of living. Indeed, we need look no further than what has already been done to tackle inequality. Throughout this symposium, there have been plenty of examples of when inequality was not a social problem. And this suggests that changes in economic ideas and government policies can lead to improvement or worsening of inequality. If something can be done, it can be undone. But the question still persists. How do we do it? And what exactly do we do? To answer these questions, I've invited all symposium participants to offer their reflections on what can be done. What small idea can be put into action that can bring about big changes? Or what big idea, when put into action, will lead to many small, meaningful changes? So to kick us off then, Professor Sue Koselman from Birkbeck. What did you want to add? Well, in our new book, The Return of the State, many of the contributors see inequality as one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century, and they suggest progressive policy solutions to tackle it. One proposal is to move away from the current obsession with economic growth, as measured by GDP, and focus on human and ecological well-being. Now, this idea has a very long history, dating back to the 1960s, when the American Senator Robert Kennedy made the point that gross national product, rather than measuring the things that contribute to our well-being and happiness, measures everything except what makes life worthwhile. And you may also be surprised to know that this idea has already been successfully implemented in nations, states, and cities around the world, including the United Kingdom. The governments of Scotland, New Zealand, Iceland, and Wales, for example, have committed to building well-being economies through innovative policies supporting the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, 
Costa Rica runs completely on renewable energy much of the time, while actively reforesting and punching well above its weight on the social progress index. Slovenia has a societal vision for 2050 that focuses on learning for life, an innovative society, trust, quality of life, and an identity that's both inclusive and outward looking. And Bhutan is working toward gross national happiness. So it isn't really such a far-fetched idea. Another proposed solution is to tackle wealth and income inequalities by targeting both the upper and lower ends of the distribution of income and wealth. This could be done through financial transactions taxes, wealth taxes, and progressive income taxes at the upper end, and a universal basic income and proper living wage at the lower end. Stuart Lansley argues that a universal income floor would reduce inequality and strengthen universalism, and he estimates that it would also cut child poverty by over a third and working age poverty by over a fifth. He also argues for a citizen's wealth fund. Such a fund has already proven successful in reducing wealth and income inequality in Norway, and it could serve as a useful model for the UK. Another proposal is debt relief for households struggling with repayments as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Jana, in fact, argues that reducing the debt overhang would help reduce inequality and support both economic recovery and stability, stopping another round of boom, bust, bailout, and austerity. Thanks for the mention, Sue. I'm honored. My small idea that would make a big difference is household debt relief. Debt relief is not simple, as there are many types of debt attached to all kinds of things, both real and fictional. Debt cancellation is complicated, but definitely possible. If we think of all the ways that debts are currently cancelled by governments, the main principle is always the same. Debts that can't be paid won't be. So discharge the debt and start afresh. It's this fresh start principle that was a key reason debtors' prisons were abolished in the 19th century and needs to be considered anew. In a nutshell, my book, Should We Abolish Household Debt, outlines how to reverse engineer government market bailouts, but for ordinary people. It means giving them access to the same historically low interest rates and debt cancellation measures used to support corporations to get them out of financial difficulty during times of crisis. A small change, like letting households refinance their debts, like corporations already do, would make a big difference to redressing inequality. This will allow people to pay less interest on their home or car loan, their student loan or credit card, or any other type of debt that people already have. It gives those people access to their own money to spend, save, or invest elsewhere. Giving everyone access to the same rate of interest on credit is equalizing. It reverses the poorer pay more effect, as well as the perils of compounding interest. Refinancing is a simple, tried and tested government's grant debt relief. Of course, my colleague, Dr. Joe Spooner from the LSE has written a leading book on personal bankruptcy as a form of debt relief. He can outline it best. Joe. And this is where I'm optimistic, the whole potential to address these forms of inequality. If we can bring about policy changes which can change the rules of the game, change the shape of the marketplace, we can potentially see more progressive outcomes being generated. 
the factors that lead to those inequalities in the marketplace are ultimately influenced by the legal sphere and the legal framework. So if we have very laissez-faire rules of contract law, which allow big business to dictate terms to low-income households, that's going to produce a certain set of outcomes. If we have rigorous financial regulation rules, which are actually going to produce uh, fairer pricing practices with less discrimination, all that sort of thing, well, then we might have a different set of outcomes. If we have creditor favoring bankruptcy laws which allow low-income households to be squeezed when they run into debt default that's going to produce more inequality whereas if we have progressive bankruptcy laws which actually offer the promise of debt relief for households who cannot pay their debts that can be a progressive position and the law could really do something about addressing this kind of inequality in that way. Now I want to bring in Dr. Luna Glucksberg whose research at the LSE's International Inequalities Institute looked at the Preston model in which a local government sought to tackle inequality. Luna, tell us more. The Preston model of community wealth building, which I think is it's a fairer way of, of describing it, came to be not very long ago. We are in, what, 2012? I, I think we can probably trace its roots in the UK from Manchester, really. About 10, 15 years? 20 at the very most. Its roots are in uh, the US and various movements that happened out around Detroit and Cleveland. And the idea is to try and relocalize resources and try to focus on institutions that are then called anchors in the model. The reason they are called anchors is that they do not move. So they cannot be companies that up and go to somewhere else in the world because labor is cheaper. So there will be things like hospitals, schools, universities, the police. And the thinking behind that is that you map what kind of resources these anchors institutions spend. So you do a spending analysis of what they're spending. And then you try and convince the anchor institutions to spend their budgets locally. So their procurement is done locally. And instead of using multinationals that will then siphon money out of the local economy you try and make sure that it's people in the local economy who get the business through that system, what they have also done in Preston, because the Preston variant of this model is heavily invested in by the local state, the, the local council. And so they have been able to do things such as raising a lot of workers, a lot of workers, to living wage levels. So their income has gone up. And this has made apparently a very big difference for women who are often uh, because they tend to be in part-time positions so these women have been overwhelmingly beneficiaries of this model another part which is still to come because obviously these things take time would be to then develop and help incubate which Preston is doing uh, cooperatives so that the work that companies do for these anchors, for example, or for other things, are workers-owned cooperatives. So again, the principle is to try and share wealth, assets and income more equally and more locally. Thank you, Luna. Now, Professor Martin O'Neill from the University of York, you wanted to come in and make a point? Some of the range of different kinds of policy solutions that the social democratic and left parties have tried in different places. So Piketty ends up now in the the 2020 book saying, right, okay, in different places, 
left and social democratic parties have either emphasised public ownership or they've emphasised the use of the tax system or they've emphasised forms of co-determination and stronger unions and kind of the different ways of, of constituting capitalist firms, different ways of, of kind of sharing power within within those structures. And Piketty's view seems to be that, that what we need now, given the kind of acceleration of, of inequality, is we need a kind of maximalist social democratic programme that does all of those, that what you have to do is kind of unite those different sorts of strands together. Wow, a real varied smorgasbord of ideas, proposals and agendas to pick from. For anyone serious about tackling inequality, whether a citizen, a member of a civil society group, or policymakers at any and all levels, they can pick from this list as a place to start. There are so many avenues opened by human ingenuity because it is not a scarce resource. Clearly, there is a lack of political will to comprehensively tackle inequality, especially in English-speaking or the Anglosphere countries. Also, there is no clear electoral mandate to force governments to act. But the future is still bright because the potential for transformation exists. The pent-up tensions caused by inequality also create the conditions for change. Today's energies and ideas only need a means to be channeled to focus that energy into a force for change. Inequality is the crisis of our time. The growing gap between a few at the top and other strata of society damages all of us. No longer able to deny the social crisis facing the advanced industrialized world, many are calling for governments to fix it. And yet, it keeps getting worse. The proposals put forward here are just that, ways of fixing inequality. There's not just one way, but many. Participants in this dialogue draw on their research or insider experience with successful social movements. They show the battle plan against inequality and route a map for us to overcome complacency or fatalism in order to build our collective power and create a new future. Inequality is the issue of our time a societal man-made problem with many possible solutions. This digital symposium brought into dialogue a range of different scholars, educators, and practitioners as a way of bringing to life why inequality is so important. We examine the established ideas and the long history of inequality as opportunity, outcome, or even asset portfolio. There is a consensus that inequality is primarily structural and that individual behaviors play a much less important role than previously thought. We discussed social stratification and the ways in which inequality ties to gender and racial discrimination within society. There is a wide agreement that history plays a big role in shaping inequality today. Inheritance, whether money from your family or the colonial legacies of empire features prominently across multiple dialogues. We delved deeply into the asset economy to explain what is generating runaway wealth at the top. But also, we discussed how this benefited the mass middle-class homeowner strata, either through capital gains or rental income. Many agreed what makes the middle-class segment so fragile is rising debt levels, stagnating incomes, growing inflation and means-tested welfare. Each of these serve to squeeze the middle class. 
This excludes large segments of society who are locked out as non-homeowners, unable to get on the property ladder or own other forms of financial assets. We teased out how debt creates a dilemma at the heart of the asset economy because debt drives both fortune and misfortune. And these ups and downs themselves create instability. Debt drives the poles of society further apart. The rich get richer when the poor pay more. Finally, we reflected on the role social democratic government can play in shaping inequality, as well as fixing it. Now all that's left is to bring this digital symposium to a close. With a most sincere thank you from the King's Politics of Inequality Working Group to all the participants and Everything Podcast for their support, as well as to you, the listener. My hope is that these dialogues feed into many more discussions and that these discussions lead to plans for action. That more people lend their voice and their deeds to redress inequality so that it is no longer the issue of our time. <laughs>